You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. I just love this place. And I love being here, whether it's there or here. So thank you for braving the dangerous heat, as my phone tells me, um, to be here this morning. I appreciate uh, spending time with you, however that comes. My name is Cheryl West Luong, and I've been here in this community since 2010, and it has been an honor to be here in many capacities, in many ways, and I love to be with you and to meet new people, and so I hope I get to meet some of you today. Um, Will you pray with me as we begin? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The scripture texts we read each week come from the lectionary. I know that some of you are very familiar with this. Uh, You may be familiar with this rhythm in the life of our church and many other churches around the world. It's a practice that unites those who choose to use the lectionary as a guide to form their liturgical practice so that you might be able to go out and discuss similar, though different experiences each week. But I want to assume that everyone here knows anything that I just said and what it might possibly mean. And so let me just take a minute before we get started to talk a little bit about the lectionary. The lectionary is a book, although I'm pretty sure Taylor, she may have just left me, she preached last week. And others here who have preached in previous weeks, Lily is here. Did you grab the book, the lectionary, or did you Google? You have the books. I knew you would do this to me. (laughs) I knew it. Uh, As another UCC pastor, former UCC pastor as myself, I knew you would have the books. Dang it. Taylor would have had me. (laughs) The rest of us. Do not have the book anymore, but typically Google a favorite website. The lectionary, though a book, um, all it is really is a set of readings that rotate um, this collection of Old Testament and New Testament readings that are set aside for each week, and they go about in a three-year cycle. This year is creatively named Year C. There's both some overlap and divergence in the Protestant and Catholic readings, and the concept of reading excerpts of our text on our Sabbath day in our place of worship comes from Jewish tradition. When we say liturgy, it really just means work of the people to the order things happen in, from the music to the way things get put together to the words we speak, though often people really are just referring to the words we speak, like the call and response of the call to worship. With this in mind, maybe it'll make more sense why some of the odd choices you might have thought when you've seen some of our summer guest preachers who have not been confined, no one has told us we had to stick to the lectionary, but have taken up the practice of following the church calendar, and I might say the slight personal challenge of preaching from the selections given. When Jamie gave me my preaching dates, Like a giddy kid with a McDonald's Monopoly scratch-off, 
I immediately looked to see what text choices laid before me. A friend this week noted the Good Samaritan text. Ah, that's a liturgical layup. I admit, I love this passage for reasons I'll get to later, but I don't really find it to be a layup. Or maybe I just don't find layups a given. So as I said, these lectionary passages, they rotate every three years. So as much as I do believe that Zuckerberg is stalking us all, it actually made sense that my Facebook memories popped up with a post that I had posted on a Sunday or a week, the same week, when I clearly was not preaching but wanted to be preaching on this text six years ago, 2016. And I apparently felt that it was my place to call out everyone else who wasn't preaching, or was preaching this week. Here's what I said. White pastors, preachers, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders. There is no conscionable way to avoid a conversation this week about white privilege. You're born white. There's no guilt in that. There should be no guilt, no implicit guilt in being born black, brown, or otherwise. However, it is time to acknowledge we live in different worlds. That is the reality. While you have the freedom to choose this Sunday to speak or not speak on current events, there's a church down the road from you that does not. A church full of people grieving, baffled, angry, afraid, disillusioned. And those pastors have no choice but to face this reality head on once again. Don't make them do it alone. When our segregated hour ends, your congregates need to know how to be good neighbors. For the lectionary preachers, the Good Samaritan passage sits waiting. I know it's Thursday. It's worth a rewrite. This is not an easy week to preach. I get that. But the same bias that keeps us from acknowledging the plight of black men in America keeps us from acknowledging the 20-plus killed, 200-plus killed in Iraq this week and those in Turkey just prior. We must learn to be better neighbors. We must. I'll leave you with a quote from my favorite book this year. The American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in the liturgy of an American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. This is from Sujong, Su Chan Ra, Prophetic Remint, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times. And I wrote hashtag Alton Sterling, hashtag Philandro Castile, hashtag Orlando shooting, hashtag London bombings, hashtag Turkey attack, hashtag pray for Iraq. Today, the hashtags are different, but not much else. Hashtag Jalen Walker. Hashtag Uvalde21. Hashtag San Antonio Tractor Trailer Migrant 53. 
Hashtag Highland Park Parade Shooting. Hashtag Philadelphia Parade Shooting. Hashtag all the other everyday Chicago non-suburban shootings. Hashtag all the other Philadelphia everyday non-suburban shootings. Hashtag pray for Brittany Griner. Suddenly, does it feel like a children's Sunday lesson or a layup, but a flailing fling across the court at the buzzer? If we're going to talk about a passage that asks us, who is my neighbor? Here at UBC, where we have added into our own church calendar a Mr. Rogers Sunday, I don't know that I can get off the hook without talking about Fred Rogers. So let me further frame the text in this way. You may be thinking, I'm really not sure there's anything else to gain from another reading of this familiar story. Is not the point of the story clear? Don't be like the first two passerbyers. Offer help to those in need. Not a bad takeaway. If you asked me as a teenager what I thought of, my relationship with this passage in Luke is much like my relationship with the passage, with this television show, Mr. Rogers. I was familiar with it as a kid. Then I went through a period of time when it seemed too plain. It was too familiar to be useful, only to finally return to it to find such depth I couldn't see the first time both in Good Samaritan Story and Mr. Rogers. If you'd asked me as a teenager what I thought of Mr. Rogers, I would have told you there was a show with a man with creepy puppets, too many sweaters, and there was no way that he was the real deal. It was dated and odd. Now, Sesame Street, that was my jam. I really wasn't much for pop culture. I was the ska kid, the, if you know the name of my band, then the band's not cool anymore kid. I really had no time for pop culture at all until I met, started dating, and married a man who loves pop culture more than probably anyone I've ever met. A man that showed up in an NSYNC hat for one of our first dates. A man that owned a Mr. Rogers t-shirt and insisted that I, well, I say insisted, I will say, by his very demeanor, caused me to learn to soften my judgments of all things popular until at least partaking. I listened to Ross's reasoning for why Mr. Rogers was so great. He never did find him creepy, but reliable and comforting and who was I to judge that? Just a absolutely unnecessary side note. So Roth isn't here because we have a sick kid, so this is even better. And the stream's down. Um, I went to Dallas Baptist, and we had this yearly lip sync battle. I could tell you of the many things that my Enneagram 4 husband did at these battles. But one year, he competed to the opening credits of Mr. Rogers, complete with sweater changes and sock puppets, 
And I am so sad that phone like cameras didn't exist then because that would be up there right now. But it wasn't until arriving at UBC that I began to understand the radical nature, nature of Reverend Fred Rogers and his ability to ask the simplest but most, most cutting questions. Are you brave and don't know it? What do you do with the mad that you feel? Why do I wonder a lot? Who shall I be today, this day? Asking the right questions is half the battle of spiritual formation, is it not? Of any formation. In the wisdom tradition, and the rabbinical tradition, questions are of utmost importance. And the lawyer or the religious scholar that we see centered in the story today was surely educated. He had asked a question, not as one willing to learn from a teacher, humble and curious, but as someone aware of his wit and intellect, aware of his audience, utilizing his stage and asking a question to trap the infamous teacher. When it doesn't work, he asks a second question in an effort to backpedal, save face, and defend his honor. I want to run through the familiar passage one more time and a different translation just to break up the hearing of the story a little bit. I'm using the voice translation this time. Just then, a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures tried to trap Jesus. Scholar, teacher, what must I do to experience the eternal life? Jesus, answering with a question, what is written in the Hebrew, what is written in the Hebrew scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? Scholar, you shall love, love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you will live. The scholar was frustrated by this response because he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. Scholar, ah, but who is my neighbor? Jesus. This fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and left him naked and bleeding and in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down the same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed him by. Then a Levite, who was on his way to assist in the temple, and came and saw the victim lying there, and he too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fellow, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over to him, stopped the bleeding, applied some first aid, and put the poor fellow on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money, two days' wages to be exact, and paid the innkeeper, saying, please take care of this fellow, and if it isn't enough, I'll repay you the next time I pass through. Which one of these proved himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? Scholar the one who showed him mercy, Jesus. Well then, go and behave like a Samaritan. 
The message uses the phrase, tried to test Jesus, and looking for a loophole, he asked. What this religious scholar is doing here is pretty clear. But what Jesus is doing, that's something else entirely. He does so much in this short story, I I can't stand it. It's brilliant. I want to go a million directions, 100 miles an hour. I won't. But instead, I want to ask you to notice a few things and consider why this parable is so prominent in our vocabulary. He directs the lawyer to ask better questions, not just exactly who exactly is my neighbor. Please define the legal definition. Tell me what will stand in a court of law. Tell me how to know I'm in the right. Tell me so I don't have to wrestle with any gray areas. Tell me exactly what I'm looking for, because you know, Jesus, we've been around a lot of people throughout our history, and we don't have the best track record with so-called neighbors. It would be best for all of us if you would make it really clear here what you mean, because that doesn't sound codifiable, and your cute and pithy saying may woo the masses, but you don't fool me. Jesus is no fool himself. He gives a rhetorical response that is not surprising. It's an answer in form of a parable. We're familiar with this. And the audience would be familiar with him using this motif of three characters in a story. Some scholars speculate that part of the staying power of the story is that the regular folks might have expected the priest and the Levi to act in this way, or at least enjoyed the moment of a religious scholar being shown up by the radical rabbi Jesus. But then the record player scratches and screeches to a halt. And Jesus offends everyone. And he names the worst possible savior. I've preached at UBC numerous times over the years. It's no secret that while I've always preached the lectionary, I've never shied away from current events or difficult topics. I've talked about immigration, talked about infertility, talked about Tamir Rice and police brutality, the things that divide us in this room. But I have never ventured as far as Jesus did that day. I've been a DEI educator, diversity, equity, and inclusion for some time. There's something we refer to as in-group versus or intra-group versus intra-group dialogue, kind of like the internet and the intranet with an A. The internet is for everyone, basically. The intranet, maybe your company has one or used to have one. If it's behind a firewall, you need a password to get to it. Samaritans aren't foreigners. They aren't the Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, well, not entirely. Some, would have, some of them would have called themselves Jews too. In fact, we have literature, mainly from Josephus later, that points to the Jews being banished when they weren't keeping up religious laws and fleeing to join the Samaritans. I won't go into the full history now, but what you need to know is this. They were the remnant of the northern tribe, and it's the southern tribe that becomes Israel. Honestly, this story feels so relatable, they were the ones left behind. When those that went into Babylonian captivity, Daniel and his lion friends, remember them? 
they, those with Daniel became the mainline tradition, and the Samaritans got into interfaith marriages. They end up with their own temple. They become further and further estranged, and this bad blood runs so deep that to avoid each other, they add days to their journey to walk around in avoidance both ways, both parties. It's interesting for Jewish people who are in occupation, in oppression, that Jesus found someone more oppressed, that Jesus found someone that the Jews were actually oppressing. Part of why we struggle to get this parable and others is this is an intra-group dialogue. This was a low blow or such a jaw-dropping story because Jesus was not playing about his two commandments and he wanted to make sure that everyone was clear on how wide this definition was to be. In telling this story where a Samaritan is the good neighbor, he challenges the scholar and all those within your shot with a bigger question. Can you recognize a good neighbor when you see one? Can you see past your prejudice and hate? Look, Jesus is not floating in a cloud declaring a lofty kumbaya edict he knows nothing about. In Luke 9, just the passage before ours, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to find a place to stay in the village of Samaria, and it didn't go well. And when James and John wanted Jesus to rain down judgment like Sodom, he doesn't, but he doesn't exactly chastise them harshly. And even in the chapter 10, right before our story today, he alludes to the severity of not offering hospitality to be the same as that judgment, clearly still thinking about it, talking about it. Yet he chooses the Samaritan in the story to illustrate one who shows compassion and mercy. But would you let me help you in a ditch? In order to fully grasp the radical nature of this parable's turn is to place yourself not as one of the three travelers, but as the nameless beaten man. Can we frame another question then? Who is your Samaritan? In a moment of no agency and complete helplessness and vulnerability, what would it be like to be shown unexpected compassion, mercy, generosity, all the things you believe are a sign of piety, sign of faithfulness, sign of a person that is the real deal when no one is looking, of upstanding character, bears much fruit. You fill in the blank. What would it be like for you if this person was your good Samaritan? You might think you don't have one. Maybe not. But remember, these weren't people that were far off enemies. These were strange kinfolk, kinfolk of the ethnic, but more importantly, religious persuasion. Can you picture being rescued by a person acting in the very way you had convinced yourself they were incapable of acting? The person whose theology makes your blood boil, whose Facebook post makes you wonder if they even read the same Bible? The one who goes to that church? This isn't a person you know, because why would you want to? 
You know the profile. They probably read blank, eat at blank, watch blank, send their kids to blank. They aren't my neighbor, and they certainly aren't capable of being a good neighbor to someone in despair. And if that person was me, if I was diagnosed with cancer tomorrow or in a terrible accident, and the person at work who stepped up and started the meal train or the prayer train I didn't even know I really believed in and brought my kids a care package and sat with them, looked at like my Samaritan, would I first question their theology, their place of worship, their temple on the wrong side of the hill, their track record on issues? Or could I say that's the one who shows compassion? That is the good neighbor. There's so much edge to this parable. It feels like a good Aaron Sorkin rundown. If you don't know who that is, West Wing, Newsroom, lesser known, my favorite sports night. And in a long Sorkin scene, sometimes you need to take a second to remember what started the seven-minute monologue. In this conversation about right questions, do you remember what started all of this? What the scholar really asked Jesus, maybe as a test, or maybe from a place of ego, fear, or anger. What he really asked was, who's in and who's out? And Jesus seems to always turn this question upside down. Maybe it's time we asked a better question. UBC, may we be a people slow to judgment, quick to compassion, not drawn to the petty conversation about right answers, but learning to lean in to better questions. Amen.